0: Hola, this is Enrique Morones from Gente Unida with another Magnificent Mujer, as we have our weekly podcast every Tuesday. You can hear it on all your normal podcast listening services, including BuenHombre.org and MagnificentMujer.org. And our producer is Sarah Bella. I'm your host, Enrique Morones, and we have another Magnificent mujer today that we're going to learn all about. And not only is she a Magnificent mujer, she is the newest member of the Endonida Board of Directors. And now we'll have completed having all seven of the board members on Buen Hombre, Magnificent mujer. And coming all the way from across the country is Ontari Williams, who's joining us. Ontari, welcome to Magnificent Mujer.
1: Thank you so much Enrique, I'm really happy to be here.
0: We're delighted that you're able to join us and I want to thank Adi for recommending you. Adi's a dear friend of ours and we were in Tijuana just the other day working with the children, with her magical musical ambassadors of peace that you're familiar with. And uh, when she told me about you, I said, fantastic. I talked to the other people on the board and they were all very interested in learning more about you and welcoming you to our family. Thank so, you so much. As, as, uh, as I normally do, whether it's my podcast or radio shows in the past, I always ask the person to kind of introduce themselves. I know that you've been an actor, you've worked in, in, in uh, politics, preparing people for the Congress, the Senate, the governor's office. You're an activist. You have a podcast. You have a very interesting uh, history. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So um, thank you for thinking it's interesting. Sometimes I just feel like it's chaotic, but that's okay. So I started as an actor. It, I grew up in Manhattan and I started acting when I was in high school. And my friends and I combined acting and activism even back then. One of the things we would do was take shows to institutions for people who had physical and emotional disabilities, and we would go and perform for them as a way of connecting them to the community outside of the institutions they were living in. And so then after college, I just went on and kept acting for a while. And I I actually did that for quite a long time. And I was fortunate to actually make some money at it and be able to support myself without having to do other work. But eventually, I got to this point where I found myself kind of bored. There just weren't enough meaty roles for black women. And, you know, people would want to cast me as the lawyer or the maid or the prostitute. And that seemed to be about it. And I finally one day just said, I'm not using enough of my brain. I need to be doing something else. And I started volunteering with someone I knew who had a political consulting business. And I found out that I was actually really good at that. And so eventually I started my own company and I was a political fundraiser. I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell for that, but I'm trying to make up for that mistake now. And I helped raise money for candidates for Congress and the Senate and, the go- and governorships. And it was really interesting. And one of the things that was interesting about it was part of the way I got to work with these people was I got to help them shape their story. So the most important thing that we have really is our story. And our story connects us with other people. And often people have a difficult time sharing their story in a way that makes it accessible to other people. And that was something that I helped these people with. And it was, it was really gratifying at the time. And I'm really glad I did it. And I also learned a lot about some of the places where our system is broken. And one of those places is definitely there is too much money in politics. If I could change something overnight, I would take all the money out of politics, every single candidate, for every single office would get a set amount of money and a set amount of airtime and that would be all they would get so that the playing field was level and the person with the most money didn't have this overwhelming advantage over someone who had brilliant ideas but maybe not the resources to fund a big campaign so that's really been important to me and then eventually i just burned out on doing that kind of political work, it's very intense, and there's just, there are too many things about our political system that are not equitable, and I just sort of thought, let me step back from this, and let me start putting the skills that I have to work in another way. And that's when I started getting seriously involved in grassroots activism, and specifically in helping other people find the place that they wanted to make a difference, and figure out their way of doing it because we're not all the same and we're not all the same kind of activists. And often people feel like, oh, I need to do it a certain way. I need to, you know, everyone is not going to be Malala Yousafzai or Greta Thunberg or Dr. King. And I wanted people to understand that even if you're super shy and you're happy as sitting in a room stuffing envelopes that that actually is truly meaningful and that there are so many ways to contribute. So that's really what I do now is I encourage activists, I support them in their work, I help them make sure they're taking care of themselves because it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I I love it. I'm really happy with what I'm doing.
0: Well, it's been a very uh, interesting and diverse background going from acting to being a political consultant to being an activist, and they kind of go hand in hand in some capacities. Yes. And, uh, and, and this interest in, in being an actor at the very beginning, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your name and, and your parents, you know, the, you know, they're always like in my case, my parents are my heroes, they're the ones that have influenced me the most, since they've known me all my life and I've known them all my life. Uh, how about in your situation? Because you have a very interesting, uh, you were telling me before, a little bit about your parents and it's fascinating. Very well,
1: well-known. my parents were remarkable people. Um, I'm only second generation American, so my grandparents on both sides emigrated to this country. And my background is that my family is from the UK and the Caribbean, Jamaica on one side and Trinidad on the other. And my mom, she was born here, but she wasn't raised here. She actually was, <laughs> she was raised um, in Trinidad, but she went to school in an English Catholic convent school. So she got this brilliant education and wound up sounding like she'd just gotten off the boat from London when she came to the United States. It was really funny. And when I was a little kid and I went to school, they started singing um, God Bless America. No, not God Bless America. What was it? It was, well, and I can't even think of it because... In my head, it's God Save the Queen and it's the music, the same music. And I was so confused because my mother was still very, she didn't come here until she was an adult. So she was still very British and that was my orientation. So it was a little bit weird. I was sort of a little bit of the oddball kid. And then my dad, my dad's parents were really remarkable. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather was an engineer, and my grandmother was a school teacher in Jamaica. And when they came here, my grandfather wound up working as a superintendent in a building. And my grandmother worked as a domestic cleaning homes because those were the jobs that were available to them. And they had four children and two aunts and my uncle and my dad. And therefore, kids, as first-generation Americans, one aunt became a doctor, one aunt became an administrator in a hospital. My uncle started one of the earliest drug rehabilitation centers in New York, and my dad wound up working for two presidents of the United States. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was my dad and my uncle both went to Columbia University. My dad went to Columbia Law School. I mean, they were literally the living American dream and it was so interesting because i grew up in this rich environment and at the same time there were these barriers because of the color of our skin and that's even true in manhattan you know the you know people think of new york city as so liberal and by many standards it is but there are ways in which it's still part of the united states and we're still always dealing with these issues of racism and structural inequalities. So, I mean, it was really, I feel very fortunate to have had the parents that I had because they always made us feel like anything we wanted to do was possible, that we would have to work for it, but it was possible. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm lucky, I'm very lucky.
0: You're very lucky and to have had them as mentors or inspirations, and the fact that you knew what to do with that, whether it was finding your exact um, uh, you know, passage in life as to what you were going to do immediately or eventually. I can totally relate to that. Uh, my parents are both from Mexico. My older brother and sister were born in Mexico. I was born here in San Diego. And uh, they are just great role models. My, my father passed away six years ago. If he was alive today, he'd be 100 years old. So wow. we had a long life. My mom is with us, and she's 93 years old. So I have um, you know good genes as far as that goes. Uh, but you never know. You never know, especially in, in this time uh, that we're living in. And you mentioned three of my heroes, um, Malala, Greta, Dr. King. And I know that you and I have chatted a little bit about Another one of our heroes that just passed, and it's very sad. And one of the greatest men to ever walk this earth, Representative John Lewis.
1: Yeah, Um, he was amazing.
0: An amazing, amazing man. And uh, just one of my heroes I know we've talked about. And there's a movement. Other people have talked about it, too, changing the Pettis Bridge to John Lewis Bridge, which which I think would be very appropriate. Uh, He came to San Diego often. He came to San Diego often he was promoting the book that he did which was like a children's book and in San Diego we have comic-con and he would come and he always knew what was important the children the children uh being with the children and passing on that love which is what it's all about and we know that Adi our friend of course that's what she does with her music ambassadors of peace with the children and it's just such a a powerful force in your acting um I have been involved a little bit in that world, not, not as an actor or anything, but a lot of times people that are in that environment, whether it be actors or musicians, they wanna be on the correct side of justice. So oftentimes they reached out to me and said, hey, we're gonna do a film, can you help us out and so forth? And one of the films I was actually in, and, um, and a few of them actually I was in, but in this one I was one of the main characters. And it was actually funded by a new group back then and you were talking about uh, the politics and the money and whoever has the most, Citizens United. Citizens United had just come on board and they made a movie called Border Wars. And it was talking about five different people. And they were telling me, yes, this is going to be fair and balanced, which of course raised a lot of flags. And I was one of the five people. And I am totally against people who has the most money all of a sudden gets into a race. And like you said, some of the people that are the most talented out there kind of get looted, or you just get a taste of them, and you want to hear more, but they don't have the funding. And recently, I think of uh, Miss Williams. She was a school teacher whom I didn't know anything about, but when I heard her in the debates, I was going, "Wow, this woman is brilliant!" What she's talking about. And then there was Mr. Yang, Andrew Yang, and I go, "Wow, this guy's great!" But they just didn't have the money to continue to give out that message and then you have people come along and not that they're good or bad, but they have a lot of money and boom, they get to dominate and
1: right. there's something wrong with
0: that system. How common is that system worldwide?
1: Well, I think the easiest answer is not common at all. And one way you can tell that is we are the only country, I'm fairly certain I'm correct about this, that doesn't have a short period where you run for office. I mean, basically, our election cycles, as soon as one election is over, we're basically back in another election cycle. And in most countries, it, you run for office, it's a three month thing or a four month thing, and then you have your election and then it's done. And you're not torturing your populace with endless campaign ads, and you're not always raising money. I mean, that's the thing is we ha- so our congressional members, our representatives serve for two years. And every two years, they have to run again. So I am not kidding when I say that the day after they are sworn in, they start raising money again for their next campaign. Now, it starts to diminish after they've been in office for a while, but it never goes away. But it also means that they are really subject to being bought by special interests who can give a lot of money to their campaigns. So it means that the average person like you or myself has a very limited impact because I can't write a check for a ton of money to anyone and it wouldn't be legal. But a corporation can have a PAC and support a politician through their political action committee and donate a ton of money. And it's just, the whole system is just not, this is not what our founding fathers wanted. This is not what they envisioned. I mean, if you think about most of those men, they served and then they went back to their jobs. That's how they thought of it. They thought of it as public service. They went back to their farms or they went back to their law practices or their medical practices. They did not look at being a politician as a career. And once we got into that situation, we've just created a huge mess for ourselves.
0: That's right. And some of these uh, the people that you mentioned earlier, Malala and Greta, of course, they're very young ladies and they're brilliant and they're heroes of mine. Heroes, I should say. And then there's Dr. King, who, like Cesar Chavez, another hero of mine, actually got into their activism looking for uh, getting people to vote, you know, registering right. people to vote and, and talking about the importance of, of being able to vote and, and so on and so forth. And, now more than ever. Now, now more than ever, the voting is so important. And for the last several elections, five or six elections, I have said this is the most important election that we've ever had. But now, this one coming up this year is the most important election we will ever have. I we
1: completely will ever have.
0: agree. I mean,
1: so I'm just important. like you. I've been saying this all, you know, every year. I would say this is the most important election. But what I know for a fact is that there will never in my lifetime be a more important election than the one coming up in November. Because what is actually on the ballot is whether this experiment that is American democracy is going to survive or not. That's what's on the ballot. And people who stayed home last time, I am begging you, understand what is at risk here and make sure you vote. Just understand what's at risk. And let me just also say, and while you're at it, fill out the census, because that is money in your community for schools and all sorts of things that otherwise you're just leaving money on the table for a decade. So vote and go and fill out the census.
0: Well, this is one of the the most uh, challenging things I face as an activist. Uh, Four years ago, um, I was pretty sure that I I knew what the results were going to be. Like, I think most of the country thought they knew. And I was actually a Bernie person, but Bernie wasn't on the ticket. So I voted for Hillary. And I have no regrets about that. So um, I'll never forget. I'm watching CNN at night and I'm looking at the results coming in. And they kept on saying, well, this big city in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin hasn't come in yet. So I was holding on to that, thinking, oh, yeah, well, when those results come in, things will get back to normal. Well, we all know what happened. And for me, what was so frustrating was you have almost 65 million people vote for Hillary, a little more than 62 million vote for Trump, and 100 million people didn't vote. That killed us. That killed us. And then it was too late. And I, what I fear now is that I have friends. I have dear friends that are in the Bernie camp still, and that's fine. But I tell them, yeah, but you got to vote. You can't just say, oh, as a protest, I'm not going to vote. Because not voting uh, is a vote. Is a vote. Is. And I can't tell people who to vote for. I wouldn't do that. But I tell them, please vote. And if you can't vote because you're not 18 years old, you don't have papers, you know people that can vote. Make sure they vote. It's more important than ever.
1: I could not agree more. And I, I've got to say that I feel like the soul of our country is on the line. And I actually on election night, 2016, I went to bed at, we had a house full of people. I went to bed at 10 o'clock cause I saw what was coming and I didn't want to see it. I just, I, I kept waking up and thinking, please, dear Lord, let this not be happening. And it did. And I thought it was going to be terrible. And it's been so much worse than i ever envisioned and i would feel so much better about that election if i knew that everyone who could vote had voted i would be unhappy about the results but i would feel like okay but at least this is really truly the will of the people which it really truly wasn't i mean don't get me started on the electoral college that is a completely antiquated system and it was seriously designed for slaveholders to perpetuate their power. So I'm completely opposed to that and think we should absolutely go to a popular vote. But until that change happens, there is no way to overstate how important it is that everyone make their vote, cast their vote and make their voice heard. Just can't overstate it. If you don't like, babies in cages on our southern border, if you don't like unnamed police in our streets, then you've got to vote. There's just no choice. You have to do what you can. And that is the primary thing we can all do.
0: When I started uh, Hanto Nida back in 2005, not as the 501c3 or a nonprofit, but as an organization, it was because of what was happening back in 2005. We had a president named Bush. We had the Iraq situation. It was a whole different world. And I was saying, we've got to make change. We have this new network out there that's promoting hate called Fox News. And we have vigilantes on the border with guns called the Minutemen. So I started this, this, uh, the Unida United People. and We got 65 organizations to join. And one of the reasons it wasn't a 501c3 is I've come out in the all, all the networks. And I would be on a network and, and, uh, and I told them don't put border angels because I was the founder of border angels as well, because it's a 501 C three. And you gotta be careful what you say about, you know, the president or something. So I said, put him cause, Cause I was the founder of, and I'm the founder of Unida. So they did that. Well, now I, I never anticipated 15 years later, what is going on now? Forget the Minutemen, now you have the Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan openly marching down uh, you know, different streets on campuses in Virginia. And you have that person uh, who I classify without a doubt as a white supremacist at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue saying that they're good people and encouraging uh, the, the promotions of hate, whether it be the Confederate flag or some of these people that promote evil, uh, having somebody, a white supremacist as his main advisor and Stephen Miller. It is out of control and um, and the blatant lies and, and the hate that's that's not what this country or this world is all about. And, and I don't know about you, but I am very very surprised at the percentage of people that actually support them.
1: They uh, know I'm who stunned.
0: I, I'm, I thought maybe 5% of the country, but when you look at a little more than 30% up to 40%. i am going, what?
1: Yeah. I just can't believe that. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm stunned on the one hand, especially because having grown up in Manhattan, I've been watching that man my entire life. And he's a complete con artist. And he does not care about anybody but himself. And his biggest con is making those, that 35 of people believe that he cares about them. He does not care about them at all. He cares about putting money in his own pocket. He cares about his own power. And that's pretty much it. I'm not honest. I mean, I don't, I think that he is mentally incapable. I think there's just a synapse that isn't firing that gives the rest of us empathy. And he does not have that synapse. And it's very disturbing. But I think what it is, is that he speaks to their fear. He speaks to their fear that the world is changing, which it is, and that their power is going to be diminished, which it probably will be. But someone's power being diminished doesn't mean that they're going to be turned into chattel or that they're going to be stomped on by anybody else it's just there's enough to go around if we had an even playing field and dignity and justice for all people those people wouldn't actually have to worry because they are all part of all people but i think that they feel like it's a zero-sum game and if they don't if they don't keep everything they have then it's then they're not going to have anything and it's terribly unfortunate and it's terribly painful to watch. My youngest brother went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville and he graduated a, two years I think before the or a year before the Charlottesville episode and it's such a lovely city and it's such a beautiful part of the country and to see those people walking down streets that I had walked on was painful and I just, you know, Thomas Jefferson is problematic, and he also helped create a structure that, if we use it well, can serve all of us and elevate all of us. And so I I think it's part of the challenge of this country, which other countries don't have, is because we are so diverse, we really need to look at a whole bunch of problems that countries that are more homogenous don't have. We have to figure out how do we embrace the differences and let those be a a strengthening aspect to our society as opposed to an aspect that tears us apart. And we haven't figured that out yet.
0: And and you're absolutely right. And on the campus there at Virginia, where we had that terrible example of white supremacy, and you have a young lady, Heather Heyer, that said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Right. I cannot see how so many people are just not outraged. Uh, Brianna, George Floyd, you know, this goes on and on. And people are still um, not outraged. There's a lot of us that are outraged. Yeah. I've been outraged for a long time. Yeah. And the movement that's been going on for the last several months, and I'm a big supporter of Black Lives Matter, as you can see from my shirt, and more importantly, my absence. Just this morning, like every morning, I'm out there doing a, a walk run for Brianna Taylor until there's justice for her. And it's something that was started by a friend of mine named Gina, and I join her whenever I can in the morning. Um, and, 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 but to see how many people just are not outraged or the comments they make. You, you mentioned that at the beginning of your professional career, you were in acting and you did get some jobs, but the lack of diversity in so many industries, for example, the film industry, or they stereotype us. Myself as a Latino, you're a gang member. You're, a, you know, you're you're working in the kitchen. You know those types of images. Instead of having, uh, you know, just like everybody else, professional white collar jobs and so forth, it's very frustrating. And one of the things that I've always preached is that that's really not going to change until the people that make the decisions uh, are also people that are reflective of of the communities of color, because they see it. Because if it's just people that that are white, and there's plenty of people that are white that are great people, but some of them are totally ignorant, and they want to be ignorant of that, and they don't create uh, equal playing ground, and you continue to see this white supremacy. I've been battling the, the media on this issue for a long time, and we have a couple of cases, I know I've talked about it before, with the main newspaper in San Diego, there was some recent articles and in the sports section, one of their sports writers, Bryce Miller, he said, talking about George Floyd, that he was an unarmed black man. And I immediately jumped all over him and I said, no, 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 he was a black man. What, why did you say unarmed? The issue is not about an armed or unarmed. The issue is about black men and black women uh, that are being uh, lynched. You know, know, in his case, Uh, the eight minutes and 46 seconds that took his life. And then their editorial, their lead editorial writer, said the same thing. And I go, this issue is not about whether the person is armed or unarmed. It's about the color of their skin. But they don't see that. And I said, I demand you publicly apologize. Write another article. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who heads up the Arab Defamation League in San Diego. And she knows this is a passion of mine. Those, You know how hate words lead to hate action. Yes said something that i had never thought of because i've always used it she was talking about a story from the bible about the good samaritan as soon as she said it i go you know i have never thought about that they, that story should be about the samaritan why do they say good samaritan it's about a samaritan and i go you know i, I shame on me i never thought of that i, I would also use the good samaritan mm-hmm. and it's the same thing about the unarmed black man or there was another writer in the paper that said an ethical Mexican businessman. I go, he's a Mexican businessman. Why did you have to put ethical? So, All the qualifiers. Words,
1: yeah, those qualifiers are not, they don't use those when they're describing white people. And, you know, and just, I was thinking the other day about the young man who killed the worshipers in South Carolina and Charleston in the church. And I was thinking about how after he murdered nine people who were praying in a church in cold blood, when he was arrested, first off, he was completely unharmed, and they bought him a burger because he was hungry. And I thought, there is no universe in this country right now where a person of color would have been treated that way and that is what we have to get past. And I'm not saying that what the police did in arresting that man was wrong. I'm saying that they need to apply the same standards across the board, and they don't. And so unarmed black man, I mean, first off, the the implication is that all black men walk around armed all the time, and that this happened to be an exceptional Black man who wasn't actually carrying a weapon. And that's just offensive on its face. And you know, the, you know people talk a lot about diverse, diversity and inclusion, and I appreciate that. And I also want people to understand when you're talking about inclusion, part of what you're saying is have that group over there, include this group over here in their party, You know, it's like being invited to the party. I don't want to be invited to the party that someone else is throwing. I want the party to be a party that we're all throwing. So they're not inviting me to take a seat at their table. I'm taking a seat at the table. And this is something that we have to really start thinking about in our languaging as well.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things that you talked about when you were doing your acting career, that you were kind of uh, catering to people with disabilities and and and, and, and that's so moving. And, I, and I, I'm a very emotional person. And when I heard the story of Elijah, the young man that was killed about a year ago, and one of the things that he used to do was play the violin for cats so they wouldn't be lonely. It just tears me apart. I, I'm thinking I, 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 that's way above anything I would have ever thought of. How, how beautiful a person uh, Elijah was. Uh, and and you know, how uh, Brianna and George, getting to know these people that like we have now, uh, yeah. where you know, you, maybe you've gotten to know the, their family members or friends when they describe them. These are human beings. Yeah. These are human beings. And oftentimes the people that are talking about them are not walking them, welcoming them to the party. They're kind mm-hmm. of talking about them as if they know what they went through, and in many cases, I tell them, almost all cases, only they know what they went through. But how dare you be using these words to describe them—unarmed black man, uh, ethical businessman—you uh, know—and yeah. and I'm going. The term terminology is very powerful, and they don't realize they're doing it. And when we call them out on it, they often refu- They usually refuse to apologize.
1: Yeah, it's p- people hate to be wrong. I mean. People just hate it. And I think that one of the lessons that I've learned through the work I've done over the years is, if I'm wrong, I just, I own it. It's like, sorry, I am sincerely sorry. And I try and learn from it and then keep moving forward because we're all gonna make mistakes. And that desire to not make a mistake, I actually think that's a key facet of white supremacy which is the structure that says things have to be perfect and you you have to look a certain way and you can't do this, you have to do that. And I think that breaking that structure down and allowing people's humanity to be there rather than this, this phony perfectionist facade that we are encouraged to present. I mean, if you go and you look at Pinterest or you look at Instagram and people are presenting the, their lives like they're these perfect things and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't look much like my life and nor should it. And I think it makes it harder for us as a society to come to terms with when we make a mistake and to learn and to grow. So I really feel like one of the things we need to do is just step back from that idea that if we make a mistake, it's somehow shameful. It's like, no, it's how we learn. You know, we didn't learn to walk perfectly the first time. We fell down a bunch of times and we kept doing it and we kept getting better and kept getting better. And that's life, just keep keep getting better, you know?
0: That's right. And, and um, now that you're in this phase of uh, activism,
1: mm-hmm. and-
0: and and, and your podcast, Stepping Into Truth. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about that. Your activism now, besides what you've already said, and your
1: podcast. Well, the podcast, it's funny. I mean, it's my third season of doing it, which kind of blows my mind because that went fast. I, I started doing it because I wanted to have these conversations about race, gender, and social justice with people that I encountered either in life or um, online or someone would tell me about. And I wanted to understand other people's activism and other people's inspiration and how other people kept themselves going in what's really hard work. Activism is not easy. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to start talking to people because I like talking to people. So I'm going to do that. and. It's just sort of evolved over the last two plus now in my third year, and it is one of the most fun things that I do because I get to have conversations with people I never ever would have imagined I'd be talking to, and people who you may not have heard of, but they're doing amazing work on the ground, and I want to lift that up.
0: And that's part of what uh, Nida is all about. With Hentonida, we have like. Uh, seven hall of famers in their own right like like yourself where they don't need gente but gente needs them because we get to learn from each other oh jesus you're doing films and you do this document documentary or Adi, the the what you're doing with the with the children first in el cajon where there's a large middle eastern community and now across the border with with migrants and refugee children From predominantly Latin America, but there's also children from Africa and from other parts of the world. It is so beautiful to see the work that they are doing. And many of these people, uh, we wouldn't know anything about them if it wasn't for people that could share it with a podcast, like your podcast, or have access to the media. Uh, There's a young lady, the youngest uh, member of our board. Her name is Erica. And I came across her because I saw her picture in the San Diego Union newspaper, dressed in a graduation gown, standing in the strawberry fields of San Diego in the North Carlsbad with her parents next to her. So with that picture, right away you get it. Her parents worked in the strawberry fields and she graduated from college, she got her master's. So I reached out to her and then she told me, you know, my dad said that you're one of the guys that used to go to those strawberry fields 35 years ago and bring food to them, living in the canyons. And I'm thinking, oh, that's impossible. You know, I was trying to work out the math. And she goes, no, it's possible. He was 17 years old when he did that. And I thought, oh, it is possible that I was one of those people that I met. And it's the power of sharing that story. How they can influence people. Uh, Malala, Greta, they're just young ladies. And when you hear their story, I always say, my generation blew it. We've done a terrible job. But this generation, they give us a lot of hope.
1: They're a amazing.
0: A of, of, of President Obama, and that hope message is still. And John Lewis, that hope message is still very much alive with me.
1: I think that that is part of what we need to be doing is keep that message alive and keep spreading that message because yes, especially right now, you know, we're we're in the middle of a, a pandemic and life has completely been turned upside down for so many people. But to have hope means you can keep moving forward and that to me is the most important thing is that we just keep moving forward because we have no control over the larger world but we can each make a difference in our realm and all of those differences add up and they really do move the needle
0: and one of the things that's happening once again and it's been going on since the beginning of time i remember abraham lincoln talked about this, about a house divided, is that there's people out there trying to divide various communities, like ours. Black and and brown relations are more important now than ever because it is easy to try to sway certain people in a certain direction by promoting fear. Like, you know, who does? So I'm always saying be very careful about that because I'm a strong, strong supporter of Black Lives Matter. And I love the fact that you see so much diversity in these rallies. I remember when, when we helped inspire the marches of 2006 and you saw four and a half million people in the streets that spring asking for immigration reform, treating the migrants, migrants with dignity and respect, that was very powerful. But never have I seen the diversity that I see today and the fact that most of those people are pretty young. They're yeah. college age kids, they're, they're white and brown and black. You know, there's a few old timers like myself, But that is very inspiring to me. we got to keep that going, especially November 3rd.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I got uh, a message from a friend of mine today who lives in Portland, Oregon. And she said that she was going to be going out to the march, to the protest tonight. And, you know, I messaged her back and said, just be safe and thanked her because she's a white woman who could very easily stay home. And she's choosing to go out and put herself on the line as a, as a co-conspirator, not just an ally, but as someone who is literally willing to put their body in the, in the, the way of people who are trying to take a, our liberties away. So I feel very encouraged by her action and the action of people who could very easily stay home and that they have taken this on as a cause they deeply believe in and are committed to feels incredibly, incredibly nourishing and hopeful to me.
0: Absolutely, my youngest brother lives in Portland as well. And I saw that not too long ago, you had the mothers come out and try to support the, the young people that were there where, were, you know, who called in the federal authorities and, and so which is horrible. And then after that, the fathers came Right. Know, the fathers came to support the mothers, and and that's that's beautiful because it is very easy to to not participate, to say that you support but not actually do it with actions. Like I like to say, love is an action,
1: yeah, uh, not just the
0: word. And we got to practice love, like John Lewis. Uh, I just cannot, you know, from free, you know, the you know the the march on, you know, Bloody Sunday and the Freedom Rides, and 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 I was, uh pardoning people and and forgiving people, whether. They were the KKK. That is way above my pay scale. I I, I have a hard time with that.
1: Yeah, I have to say, he was. He, he was an amazing, amazing man. And I aspire to that level of true generosity and love. I, I definitely fall short of that because I have a lot of um, loathing in my heart for the current occupant of the Oval Office, so um, clearly I have not made it to the level of sainthood that John Lewis attained, but he's a lovely, he's a lovely inspiration and he's, and his memory really does move me to be better and to do better. And I, I like what you say, said about love being an action, because my version of that is love is a verb. It's what you do.
0: Exactly. And as a matter of fact, my closing question, you've sort of answered it, that I ask everybody on whether it was my radio shows or the podcast, is what to you, and, and before you, you answer well, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to ask you. What to you is love? And also, one of the things that I kind of hinted about at the very beginning that I forgot to to ask the meaning of your name. So maybe first the meaning of your name and then what is love?
1: Well, my name means, it's, my name is from Sanskrit and it means the power of the primordial sound. So the power of the sound that created the universe. And most times I like it every now and then it feels like, oh my goodness, this is a lot to live up to. Um, and then what love means to me, wow, I think, the best thing I can say to that is really seeing other people not as different and separate from myself. To really right. see the I oneness.
0: This, this, when I think about love, one of the things that I will be thinking of um, in the near future, one of them is Elijah. Uh, Elijah, what he was doing by playing the violin to, to stray cats. That is love. I mean, uh, that the breaks life my heart of John every Lewis. time the life of John Lewis, that is, uh, that is love. You know, here's a woman that is on a bus and gets attacked, the they try to kill her, Malala, and what she has turned around and done, that is love. Greta, a teenager teaching us about, we've got to save the earth, That that is love. And And I try to use those as examples, knowing that I'll never be even close to that. But the little bit that we can do as individuals, uh, and my passion is the children, the yes. children. Because when I see a child, I go, that's love. And anybody that doesn't believe in God, whomever that person is, as far as the way they interpret it, to me, it's that child. The way they look at you with total trust and love and the way that they all get along with each other, that is pure beauty. That, that, is, yeah. that is love. And that is God.
1: I could not agree more. My brother is going to become a dad in a few months and I can't wait to meet that baby because yes, that's the future and that's why we do what we do. So I completely agree.
0: Absolutely. Well, Onkari Williams, thank you very much for being that magnificent mujer. guest today because you're a magnificent head every day and we're going to ask you uh, afterwards to give us some of the links where people can get a hold of you where they can learn more about the work that you're doing where they could tune into your podcast because that's one of the things we do with Hendo Media and that you mentioned that you do as well. We try to create that network so other people can tap in. I didn't realize there were these music amb- ambassadors of peace, or that there's this group going over here and, and, and the Auntie's Sewing Club. The Auntie's Sewing Club is a group that makes these masks for us and they give them to Hendo and they're the masks that we took down to the shelters this past week. But they also make masks for the Navajo Nation and. And here's a group of women that are making these masks. That is love. And, yes. and so it's important that we pass that love along because love is the strongest force. As Martin Luther King used to teach us and Mahatma Gandhi, it's love that overcomes hate.
1: Yes, In it's that love. love that will see us through all of the struggles we're currently going through. So.
0: Amen. Omkari, thank you very much. I send you my love and looking forward to being a, a part of the Hente family.
1: Thank you so much, Enrique. You take good care.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Gracias.